Hello and welcome to the Mayorzine, the weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage narrated fiction, curated and narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. This week we blast off into space. Or rather, we'll meet someone who will blast off into space. I know, I know, finally, some sci-fi. While I don't want this podcast to feature any one genre too heavily, I've got a lot of sci-fi for you. So don't worry that it'll be a while before you hear more. Before we venture into the fantastic, however, let's get more down to earth. This first piece may seem familiar to fans of sci-fi. Pigs as Pigs by Ellis Parker Butler is the inspiration behind one of the most famous sci-fi television episodes ever. Star Trek's The Trouble with Tribbles. Even you non-Trek fans probably know what a Tribble is, even if you haven't actually seen the episode in question. In this case, the Tribbles are actually guinea pigs. Let's see what kind of trouble they get into. Pigs is Pigs by Ellis Parker Butler Originally published in 1905 Mike Flannery, the Westcote agent of the Interurban Express Company, leaned over the counter of the express office and shook his fist. Mr. Morehouse, angry and red, stood on the other side of the counter, trembling with rage. The argument had been long and heated, and at last Mr. Morehouse had talked himself speechless. The cause of the trouble stood on the counter between the two men. It was a soapbox, across the top of which were nailed a number of strips, forming a rough but serviceable cage. In it, two spotted guinea pigs were greedily eating lettuce leaves. Do as you like, then! shouted Flannery. Pay for them and take them, or don't pay for them and leave them be. Rules is rules, Mr. Morehouse, and Mike Flannery's not going to be called down for breaking of them. But you everlastingly stupid idiot, shouted Mr. Morehouse, madly shaking a flimsy printed book beneath the agent's nose. Can't you read it here in your own plain printed rates? Pets, domestic, Franklin to Westcote, if properly boxed, 25 cents each. He threw the book on the counter in disgust. What more do you want? Aren't they pets? Aren't they domestic? Aren't they properly boxed? What? He turned and walked back and forth rapidly, frowning ferociously. Suddenly he turned to Flannery and, forcing his voice to an artificial calmness, spoke slowly but with intense sarcasm. Pets he said. P-E-T-S. Twenty-five cents each. There are two of them. One. Two. Two times twenty-five are fifty. Can you understand that? I offer you fifty cents. Flannery reached for the book. He ran his hand through the pages and stopped at page sixty-four. And I don't take fifty cents, he whispered in mockery. Here's the rule for it. When the agent be in any doubt regarding which of the two rates applies to a shipment, he shall charge the larger. The consignee may file a claim for the overcharge. In this case, Mr. Morehouse, I be in doubt. Pets them animals may be, and domestic they may be, but pigs, I'm blame sure they do be. And me rule says, plain as the nose on your face, pigs, Franklin to Westcote, thirty cents each. And Mr. Morehouse, by me arithmetical knowledge, two times thirty comes to sixty cents. Mr. Morehouse shook his head savagely. Nonsense, he shouted. Confounded nonsense, I tell you. Why, you poor, ignorant foreigner, that rule means common pigs, domestic pigs, not guinea pigs. Flannery was stubborn. Pegs as pegs, he declared firmly. Guinea pigs, or Italian pigs, or Irish pigs, is all the same to the Interurban Express Company and to Mike Flannery. The nationality of the pig creates no differentiality in the rate, Mr. Morehouse. 
'Twould be the same as they was Dutch pigs or Russian pigs. Mike Flannery, he added, is here to tend to the express business and not to hold conversation with Italian pigs in 17 languages for to discover be they Chinese or Tipperary by birth and nativity. Mr. Morehouse hesitated. He bit his lip and then flung out his arms wildly. Very well, he shouted. You shall hear of this. Your president shall hear of this. It is an outrage. I have offered you fifty cents. You refuse it. Keep the pigs until you are ready to take the fifty cents. But by George, sir, if one hair of those pigs' heads is harmed, I will have the law on you. He turned and stalked out, slamming the door. Flannery carefully lifted the soapbox from the counter and placed it in a corner. He was not worried. He felt the peace that comes to a faithful servant who has done his duty and done it well. Mr. Morehouse went home raging. His boy, who had been awaiting the guinea pigs, knew better than to ask him for them. He was a normal boy and therefore always had a guilty conscience when his father was angry. So the boy slipped quietly around the house. There was nothing so soothing to a guilty conscience as to be out of the path of the Avenger. Mr. Morehouse stormed into the house. Where's the ink? he shouted at his wife as soon as his foot was across the door sill. Mrs. Morehouse jumped guiltily. She never used ink. She had not seen the ink, nor moved the ink, nor thought of the ink. But her husband's tone convicted her of the guilt of having born and reared a boy, and she knew that whenever her husband wanted anything in a loud voice, the boy had been at it. I'll find Sammy, she said meekly. When the ink was found, Mr. Morehouse wrote rapidly, and he read the completed letter and smiled a triumphant smile. That will settle that crazy Irishman, he exclaimed. When they get that letter, he will hunt another job, all right. A week later, Mr. Morehouse received a long official envelope with the card of the Interurban Express Company in the upper left corner. He tore it open eagerly and drew out a sheet of paper. At the top, it bore the number A6754. The letter was short. Subject, rate on guinea pigs, it said. Dear Sir, we are in receipt of your letter regarding rate on guinea pigs between Franklin and Westcote addressed to the president of this company. All claims for overcharge should be addressed to the claims department. Mr. Morehouse wrote to the claims department. He wrote six pages of choice sarcasm, vituperation, and argument and sent them to the claims department. A few weeks later, he received a reply from the claims department. Attached to it was his last letter. Dear Sir, said the reply, Your letter of the 16th addressed to this department, subject rate on guinea pigs from Franklin to Westcote, received. We have taken up the matter with our agent at Westcote, and his reply is attached herewith. He informs us that you refused to receive the consignment or to pay the charges. You have therefore no claim against this company, and your letter regarding the proper rate on the consignment should be addressed to our tariff department. Mr. Morehouse wrote to the tariff department. He stated his case clearly, and gave his arguments in full, quoting a page or two from the encyclopedia to prove that guinea pigs were not common pigs. With the care that characterizes corporations when they are systematically conducted, Mr. Morehouse's letter was numbered, okayed, and started through the regular channels. Duplicate copies of the bill of lading, manifest, Flannery's receipt for the package, and several other pertinent papers were pinned to the letter, and they were passed to the head of the tariff department. The head of the tariff department put his feet on his desk and yawned. He looked through the papers carelessly. Miss Kane, he said to his stenographer, take this letter. Agent, Westcote, New Jersey. Please advise why consignment referred to in attached papers was refused domestic pet rates. Miss Kane made a series of curves and angles on her notebook and waited with pencil poised. The head of the department looked at the papers again. Ah, guinea pigs, he said. Probably starved to death by this time. Add this to that letter. Give condition of consignment at present. He tossed the papers onto the stenographer's desk took his feet from his own desk, and went out to lunch. When Mike Flannery received the letter, he scratched his head. Give present condition, he repeated thoughtfully. Now what do them clerks be wanting to know, I wonder? Present condition, is it? 
Them pigs, praise St. Patrick, do be in good health, so far as I know. But I never was no veterinary surgeon to Italian pigs. Maybe them clerks wants me to call in the pig doctor and have their pulses took. One thing I do know, however, which is they've glorious appetites for pigs of their size. Eight? They'd ate the brass padlocks off of a barn door. If the paddy pig, by the same token, ate as hearty as these Italian pigs do, there'd be a famine in Ireland. To assure himself that his report would be up to date, Flannery went to the rear of the office and looked into the cage. The pigs had been transferred to a larger box, a dry goods box. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, he counted. Seven spotted in one all black, all well and hearty and all eaten like raging hippopotamuses. He went back to his desk and wrote. Mr. Morgan, head of tariff department, he wrote. Why do I say Italian pigs is pigs? Because they is pigs, and will be till you say they ain't, which is what the rule book says. Stop your jollying me, you know it as well as I do. As to health, they are all well and hoping you are the same. P.S. There are eight now, the family increased, all good eaters. P.S. I paid out so far two dollars for cabbage, which they like. Shall I put in bill for same what? Morgan, head of the tariff department, when he received this letter, laughed. He read it again and became serious. By George, he said. Flannery is right. Pigs is pigs. I'll have to get the authority on this thing. Meanwhile, a Miss Kane, take this letter. Agent, Westcote, New Jersey. Regarding shipment, guinea pigs. File number A6754. Rule 83, General Instruction to Agents, clearly states that agents shall collect from consignee all costs of provender, etc., etc., required for livestock while in transit or storage. You will proceed to collect same from consignee. Flannery received this letter next morning, and when he read it, he grinned. Proceed to collect, he said softly. How them clerks do like to be talking! Me proceed to collect two dollars and twenty-five cents off Mr. Morehouse. I wonder do them clerks know Mr. Morehouse. I'll get it. Oh, yes. Mr. Morehouse, two and a quarter, please. Certainly, me dear friend Flannery. Delighted. Not. Flannery drove the express wagon to Mr. Morehouse's door. Mr. Morehouse answered the bell. Aha! he cried as soon as he saw it was Flannery. So you've come to your senses at last, have you? I thought you would. Bring the box in. I have no box, said Flannery coldly. I have a bill again, Mr. John C. Morehouse, for two dollars and twenty-five cents for cabbages eaten by his Italian pigs. Would you wish to pay it? Pay? Cabbages? gasped Mr. Morehouse. Do you mean to say that two little guinea pigs ate, said Flannery. Papa and Mama and the six children, eight. For answer, Mr. Morehouse slammed the door in Flannery's face. Flannery looked at the door reproachfully. I take it the consignee don't want to pay for them cabbages, he said. If I know signs of refusal, the consignee refuses to pay for one dang cabbage leaf and be hanged to me. Mr. Morgan, the head of the tariff department, consulted the president of the Interurban Express Company regarding guinea pigs as to whether they were pigs or not pigs. The president was inclined to treat the matter lightly. What is the rate on pigs and on pets? he asked. Pigs, thirty cents. Pets, twenty-five, said Morgan. Then of course guinea pigs are pigs, said the president. Yes, agreed Morgan. I look at it that way, too. A thing that can come under two rates is naturally due to be classed as the higher. But are guinea pigs pigs? Aren't they rabbits? Come to think of it, said the president, I believe they are more like rabbits, sort of halfway stationed between pig and rabbit. I think the question is this. Are guinea pigs of the domestic pig family? I'll ask Professor Gordon. He is authority on such things. Leave the papers with me. The president put the papers on his desk and wrote a letter to Professor Gordon. Unfortunately, the professor was in South America collecting zoological specimens, and the letter was forwarded to him by his wife. As the professor was in the highest Andes, where no white man had ever penetrated, the letter was many months in reaching him. The president forgot the guinea pigs. Morgan forgot them. 
Mr. Morehouse forgot them, but Flannery did not. One half of his time he gave to the duties of his agency. The other half was devoted to the guinea pigs. Long before Professor Gordon received the president's letter, Morgan received one from Flannery. About them pigs, it said. What shall I do? They are great in family life. No race suicide for them. There are 32 now. Shall I sell them? Do you take this express office for a menagerie? Answer quick. Morgan reached for a telegraph blank and wrote, Agent, Westcote, don't sell pigs. He then wrote Flannery a letter calling his attention to the fact that the pigs were not the property of the company, but were merely being held during a settlement of a dispute regarding rates. He advised Flannery to take the best possible care of them. Flannery, letter in hand, looked at the pigs and sighed. The dry goods box cage had become too small. He boarded up twenty feet of the rear of the express office to make a large and airy home for them and went about his business. He worked with feverish intensity when out on his rounds, for the pigs required attention and took most of his time. Some months later, in desperation, he seized a sheet of paper and wrote 160 across it and mailed it to Morgan. Morgan returned it, asking for explanation. Flannery replied, There be now 160 of them pigs. For heaven's sake, let me sell off some. Do you want me to go crazy? What? Sell no pigs, Morgan wired. Not long after this, the president of the express company received a letter from Professor Gordon. It was a long and scholarly letter. But the point was that the guinea pig was the Cava aparoia, while the common pig was the genius sus of the family Swedae. He remarked that they were prolific and multiplied rapidly. They are not pigs, said the president decidedly to Morgan. The 25-cent rate applies. Morgan made the proper notation on the papers that had accumulated in file A6754 and turned them over to the audit department. The audit department took some time to look the matter up, and after the usual delay, wrote Flannery that as he had on hand 160 guinea pigs, the property of consignee, he should deliver them and collect charges at the rate of 25 cents each. Flannery spent a day herding his charges through a narrow opening in their cage so that he might count them. Audit department, he wrote when he had finished the count. You are way off. There maybe was 160 pigs once, but wake up, don't be a back number. I've got even 800. Now shall I collect for 800 or what? How about $64 I paid out for cabbages? It required a great many letters back and forth before the audit department was able to understand why the error had been made of billing 160 instead of 800, and still more time for it to get the meaning of the cabbages. Flannery was crowded into a few feet at the extreme front of the office. The pigs had all the rest of the room, and the two boys were employed constantly attending to them. The day after Flannery had counted the guinea pigs, there were eight more added to his drove, and by the time the audit department gave him authority to collect for 800, Flannery had given up all attempts to attend to the receipt or the delivery of goods. He was hastily building galleries around the express office, tier above tier. He had 4,064 guinea pigs to care for. More were arriving daily. Immediately following its authorization, the audit department sent another letter, but Flannery was too busy to open it. They wrote another, and then they telegraphed. Error in guinea pig bill. Collect for two guinea pigs, 50 cents. Deliver all to consignee. Flannery read the telegram and cheered up. He wrote out a bill as rapidly as his pencil could travel over paper and ran all the way to the Morehouse home. At the gate, he stopped suddenly. The house stared at him with vacant eyes. The windows were bare of curtains, and he could see into the empty rooms. A sign on the porch said, To let. Mr. Morehouse had moved. Flannery ran all the way back to the express office. Sixty-nine guinea pigs had been born during his absence. He ran out again and made feverish inquiries in the village. Mr. Morehouse had not only moved, but he had left Westcote. Flannery returned to the express office and found that 206 guinea pigs had entered the world since he left it. He wrote a telegram to the audit department. Can't collect 50 cents for two pigs. Consignee has left town. Address unknown. What shall I do? Flannery. The telegram was handed to one of the clerks in the audit department, and as he read it, he laughed. Flannery must be crazy. He ought to know that the thing to do is to return the consignment here, said the clerk. 
He telegraphed Flannery to send the pigs to the main office of the company at Franklin. When Flannery received the telegram, he set to work. The six boys he had engaged to help him also set to work. They worked with the haste of desperate men, making cages out of soap boxes, cracker boxes, and all kinds of boxes, and as fast as the cages were completed, they filled them with guinea pigs and expressed them to Franklin. Day after day, the cages of guinea pigs flowed in a steady stream from West Coast to Franklin, and still Flannery and his six helpers ripped and nailed and packed relentlessly and feverishly. At the end of the week, they had shipped 280 cases of guinea pigs, and there were in the express office 704 more pigs than when they began packing them. Stop sending pigs! Warehouse full! came a telegram to Flannery. He stopped packing only long enough to wire back, Can't stop! and kept on sending them. On the next train up from Franklin came one of the company's inspectors. He had instructions to stop the stream of guinea pigs at all hazards. As his train drew up at Westcote Station, he saw a cattle car standing on the express company's siding. When he reached the express office, he saw the express wagon backed up to the door. Six boys were carrying bushel baskets full of guinea pigs from the office and dumping them into the wagon. Inside the room, Flannery, with his coat and vest off, was shoveling guinea pigs into bushel baskets with a coal scoop. He was winding up the guinea pig episode. He looked up at the inspector with a snort of anger. One wagon load more and I'll be quit of them. And never will you catch Flannery with no more foreign pigs on his hands. No, sir. They near was the death of me. Next time I'll know that pigs of whatever nationality is domestic pigs and go at the lowest rate. He began shoveling again rapidly, speaking quickly between breaths. Rules may be rules, but you can't fool Mike Flannery twice with the same trick. When it comes to livestock, dang the rules. So long as Flannery runs his express office, pigs is pets, and cows is pets, and horses is pets, and lions and tigers and Rocky Mountain goats is pets, and the rate on them is twenty-five cents. He paused long enough to let one of the boys put an empty basket in the place of the one he had just filled. There were only a few guinea pigs left. As he noted their limited number, his natural habit of looking on the bright side returned. Well, anyhow, he said cheerfully, tis not so bad as it might be. What if them Italian pigs had been elephants? Now that we've got the pigs, let's get into space! Captain, and later Major and Colonel S.P. Meek, was a regular contributor to astounding stories of super science. He did indeed hold those ranks in the military. He was a chemist and ordnance expert with the Army. He only wrote sci-fi during a period of three years, after which he took his pen to children's books. You'll hear him again. I rather like his stories. The following story is the only one he published with his full name, Sterner St. Paul. into space. By Sterner St. Paul, otherwise known as Captain S.P. Meek. Originally published in 1930.
Many of my readers will remember the mysterious radio messages, which were heard by both amateur and professional shortwave operators during the nights of the 23rd and 24th of last September. And even more will remember the astounding discovery made by Professor Montesquieu of the Lick Observatory on the night of September 25th. At the time, some inspired writers tried to connect the two events, maintaining that the discovery of the fact that the Earth had a new satellite coincident with the receipt of the mysterious messages was evidence that the new planetoid was inhabited and that the messages were attempts on the part of the inhabitants to communicate with us. The fact that the messages were on a lower wavelength than any receiver then in existence could receive with any degree of clarity, and the additional fact that they appeared to come from an immense distance lent a certain air of plausibility to these ebullitions in the Sunday magazine sections. For some weeks, the feature writers harped on the subject, but the hurried construction of new receivers, which would work on a lower wavelength, yielded no results and the solemn pronouncements of astronomers to the effect that the new celestial body could by no possibility have an atmosphere on account of its small size, finally put an end to the talk. So the matter lapsed into oblivion. While quite a few people will remember the two events I have noted, I doubt whether there are 500 people alive who will remember anything at all about the disappearance of Dr. Livermore of the University of Calvada on September 23rd. He was a man of some local prominence, but he had no more than a local fame, and a few papers outside of California even noted the event in their columns. I do not think that anyone ever tried to connect up his disappearance with the radio messages or the discovery of the new earthly satellite. Yet the three events were closely bound up together, and but for the doctor's disappearance, the other two would never have happened. Dr. Livermore taught physics at Calvada or at least he taught the subject when he remembered that he had a class and felt like teaching. His students never knew whether he would appear at class or not, but he always passed everyone who took his courses, and so, of course, they were always crowded. The university authorities used to remonstrate with him, but his ability as a research worker was so well known and recognized that he was allowed to go about as he pleased. He was a bachelor who lived alone and who had no interests in life, so far as anyone knew other than his work. I first made contact with him when I was a freshman at Calvada, and for some unknown reason he took a liking to me. My father had insisted that I follow in his footsteps as an electrical engineer. As he was paying my bills, I had to make a show at studying engineering while I clandestinely pursued my hobby, literature. Dr. Livermore's courses were the easiest in the school, and they counted as science, so I regularly registered for them, cut them, and attended a class in literature as an auditor. The doctor used to meet me on the campus and laughingly scold me for my absence, but he was really in sympathy with my ambition, and he regularly gave me a passing mark and my units of credit without regard to my attendance, or rather, lack of it. When I graduated from Calvada, I was theoretically an electrical engineer. Practically, I had a pretty good knowledge of contemporary literature and knew almost nothing about my so-called profession. I stalled around Dad's office for a few months until I landed a job as a cub reporter on the San Francisco Graphic, and then I quit him cold. When the storm blew over, Dad admitted that you couldn't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear and agreed with a grunt to my new line of work. He said that I would probably be a better reporter than an engineer because I couldn't by any possibility be a worse one, and let it go at that. However, all this has nothing to do with the story— it just explains how I came to be acquainted with Dr. Livermore in the first place, and why he sent for me on September 22nd in the second place. The morning of the 22nd, the city editor called me in and asked me if I knew old liver pills. He says that he has a good story ready to break, but he won't talk to anyone but you, went on Barnes. I offered to send out a good man, for when old liver pills starts a story, it ought to be good, but all I got was a high-powered bawling out. He said that he would talk to you or no one and would just as soon talk to no one as to me any longer. Then he hung up. You better take a run out to Calvada and see what he has to say. I can have a good man rewrite your drivel when you get back. I was more or less used to that sort of talk from Barnes, so I paid no attention to it. I drove my fliver down to Calvada and asked for the doctor. Dr. Livermore, said the bursar. Why, he hasn't been around here for the last ten months. 
This is his sabbatical year, and he is spending it on a ranch he owns up at Hat Creek, near Mount Lassen. You'll have to go there if you want to see him. I knew better than to report back to Barnes without the story, so there was nothing to it but to drive up to Hat Creek, and a long, hard drive it was. I made Redding late that night. The next day I drove on to Bernie and asked for directions to the doctor's ranch. So you're going up to Doc Livermore's, are you? asked the postmaster, my informant. Have you got an invitation? I assured him that I had. It's a good thing, he replied, because he don't allow anyone on his place without one. I'd like to go up there myself and see what's going on, but I don't want to get shot at like old Pete Johnson did when he tried to drop in on the dock and pay him a little call. There's something mighty funny going on up there. Naturally, I tried to find out what was going on, but evidently the postmaster, who was also the express agent, didn't know. All he could tell me was that a lot of junk had come for the doctor by express and that a lot more had been hauled in by truck from Redding. What kind of junk? I asked him. Almost everything, bub. Sheet steel, machinery, batteries, cases of glass, and Lord knows what all. It's been going on ever since he landed there. He has a bunch of Indians working for him, and he don't let a white man on the place. Forced to be satisfied with this meager information, I started old Lizzie and lit out for the ranch. After I had turned off the main trail, I met no one until the ranch house was in sight. As I rounded a bend in the road which brought me in sight of the building, I was forced to put on my brakes at top speed to avoid running into a chain which was stretched across the road. An Indian armed with a Winchester rifle stood behind it, and when I stopped, he came up and asked my business. My business is with Dr. Livermore, I said tartly. You got a letter? he inquired. No, I answered. No letter? No doctor, he replied and walked stolidly back to his post. This is absurd, I shouted, and drove Lizzie up to the chain. I saw that it was merely hooked to a ring at the end, and I climbed out and started to take it down. A thirty-thirty bullet embedded itself in the post an inch or two from my head, and I changed my mind about taking down that chain. No letter, no doctor, said the Indian laconically as he pumped another shell into his gun. I was balked until I noticed a pair of telephone wires running from the house to the tree to which one end of the chain was fastened. Is that a telephone to the house? I demanded. The Indian grunted in assent. Dr. Livermore telephoned me to come and see him, I said. Can't I call him up and see if he still wants to see me? The Indian debated the question with himself for a minute and then nodded a doubtful assent. I cranked the old coffee mill type of telephone which I found and presently heard the voice of Dr. Livermore. This is Tom Faber, doctor, I said. The graphics sent me up to get a story from you, but there's an Indian here who started to murder me when I tried to get past your barricade. Good for him, chuckled the doctor. I heard the shot, but didn't know that he was shooting at you. Tell him to talk to me. The Indian took the telephone at my bidding and listened for a minute. You go in, he agreed when he hung up the receiver. He took down the chain, and I drove on up to the house to find the doctor waiting for me on the veranda. Hello, Tom, he greeted me heartily. So you had trouble with my guard, did you? I nearly got murdered, I said ruefully. I expect that Joe would have drilled you if you had tried to force your way in, he remarked cheerfully. I forgot to tell him that you were coming today. I told him you would be here yesterday, but yesterday isn't today to that Indian. I wasn't sure you would get here at all in point of fact for I didn't know whether that old fool I talked to in your office would send you or someone else. If anyone else had been sent, he would have never got by Joe, I can tell you. Come in. Where's your bag? I haven't one, I replied. I went to Calvada yesterday to see you and didn't know until I got there that you were up here. The doctor chuckled. I guess I forgot to tell where I was, he said. That man I talked to got me so mad that I hung up on him before I told him. Doesn't matter, though. I can dig you up a new toothbrush, and I guess you can make out with that. Come in! I followed him into the house, and he showed me a room fitted with a crude bunk, a washstand, a bowl, and a pitcher. You won't have many luxuries here, Tom, he said. But you won't need to stay here for more than a few days. My work is done. I am ready to start. In fact, I would have started yesterday instead of today had you arrived. Now don't ask any questions, it's nearly lunchtime. 
What's the story, doctor? I asked after lunch as I puffed one of his excellent cigars. And why did you pick me to tell it to? For several reasons, he replied, ignoring my first question. In the first place, I like you, and I think that you can keep your mouth shut until you are told to open it. In the second place, I have always found that you had the gift of vision or imagination and have the ability to believe. In the third place, you are the only man I know who had the literary ability to write up a good story and at the same time has the scientific background to grasp what it is all about. Understand that unless I have your promise not to write this story until I tell you that you can, not a word will I tell you. I reflected for a moment. The graphic would expect the story when I got back, but on the other hand, I knew that unless I gave the desired promise, the doctor wouldn't talk. All right, I assented. I'll promise. Good, he replied. In that case, I'll tell you all about it. No doubt you, like the rest of the world, think that I'm crazy. Why, not at all, I stammered. In point of fact, I had often harbored such a suspicion. Oh, that's all right, he went on cheerfully. I am crazy, crazy as a loon, which, by the way, is a highly sensible bird with a well-balanced mentality. There is no doubt that I am crazy, but my craziness is not of the usual type. Mine is the insanity of genius. He looked at me sharply as he spoke, but long sessions at poker in the San Francisco press club had taught me how to control my facial muscles, and I never batted an eye. He seemed satisfied and went on. From your college work, you are familiar with the laws of magnetism, he said. Perhaps, considering just what your college career really was, I might better say that you are supposed to be familiar with them. I joined with him in his laughter. It won't require a very deep knowledge to follow the thread of my argument, he went on. You know, of course, that the force of magnetic attraction is inversely proportional to the square of the distances separating the magnet and the attracted particles, and also that each magnetized particle had two poles, a positive and a negative pole, or a north pole and a south pole, as they are usually called. I nodded. Consider for a moment that the laws of magnetism, insofar as concerns the relation between distance and power of attraction, are exactly matched by the laws of gravitation. But there the similarity between the two forces ends, I interrupted. But there the similarity does not end, he said sharply. That is the crux of the discovery which I have made, that magnetism and gravity are one and the same or rather that the two are separate but similar manifestations of one force. The parallel between the two grows closer with each succeeding experiment. You know, for example, that each magnetized particle has two poles. Similarly, each gravitized particle, to coin a new word, had two poles, one positive and one negative. Every particle on the Earth is so oriented that the negative poles point toward the positive center of the Earth. This is what causes the commonly known phenomena of gravity or weight. I can prove the fallacy of that in a moment, I retorted. There are none so blind as those who will not see, he quoted with an icy smile. I can probably predict your puerile argument, but go ahead and present it. If two magnets are placed so that the north pole of one is in juxtaposition to the south pole of the other, they attract one another, I said. If the position of the magnets be reversed so that the two similar poles are opposite, they will repel. If your theory were correct, a man standing on his head would fall off the earth. Exactly what I expected, he replied. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a small bar magnet placed within the field of attraction of a large electromagnet? Of course you have. And you have noticed that when the north pole of the bar magnet was pointed toward the electromagnet, the bar was attracted. However, when the bar was reversed and the south pole pointed toward the electromagnet, the bar was still attracted. You doubtless remember that experiment. But in that case, the magnetism of the electromagnet was so large that the polarity of the small magnet was reversed, I cried. Exactly. 
And the field of gravity of the earth is so great compared to the gravity of a man that when he stands on his head, his polarity is instantly reversed. I nodded. His explanation was too logical for me to pick a flaw in it. If that same bar magnet were held in the field of the electromagnet with its north pole pointed toward the magnet, and then, by the action of some outside force of sufficient power, its polarity were reversed, the bar would be repelled. If the magnetism were neutralized and held exactly neutral, it would be neither repelled nor attracted, but would act only as the force of gravity impelled it. Is that clear? Perfectly, I assented. That, then, paves the way for what I have to tell you. I have developed an electrical method of neutralizing the gravity of a body while it is within the field of the Earth, and also, by a slight extension, a method of entirely reversing its polarity. I nodded calmly. Do you realize what this means? he cried. No, I replied, puzzled by his great excitement. Man alive? he cried. It means that the problem of aerial flight is entirely revolutionized, and that the era of interplanetary travel is at hand. Suppose that I construct an airship and then render it neutral to gravity. It would weigh nothing, absolutely nothing. The tiniest propeller would drive it at almost incalculable speed with a minimum consumption of power, for the only resistance to its motion would be the resistance of the air. If I were to reverse the polarity, it would be repelled from the earth with the same force with which it is now attracted, and it would rise with the same acceleration as a body falls toward the earth. It would travel to the moon in two hours and forty minutes. But air resistance would... There is no air a few miles from the earth. Of course, I do not mean that such a craft would take off from the earth and land on the moon three hours later. There are two things which would interfere with that. One is the fact that the propelling force, the gravity of the Earth, would diminish as the square of the distance from the center of the Earth increases. And the other is that when the band of neutral attraction, or rather repulsion, between the Earth and the Moon had been reached, it would be necessary to decelerate so as to avoid a smash on landing. I have been over the whole thing, and I find that it would take 29 hours and 52 minutes to make the whole trip. The entire thing is perfectly possible. In fact, I have asked you here to witness and report the first interplanetary trip to be made. Have you constructed such a device? I cried. My spaceship is finished and ready for your inspection, he replied. If you will come with me... I will show it to you. Hardly knowing what to believe, I followed him from the house and to a huge barn-like structure over a hundred feet high which stood nearby. He opened the door and switched on a light, and there before me stood what looked at first glance to be a huge artillery shell, but of a size larger than any ever made. It was constructed of sheet steel, and while the lower part was solid, the upper sections had huge glass windows set in them. On the point was a mushroom-shaped protuberance. It measured perhaps 50 feet in diameter and was 140 feet high, the doctor informed me. A ladder led from the floor to a door about 50 feet from the ground. I followed the doctor up the ladder and into the space flyer. The door led us into a comfortable living room through a double-door arrangement. The whole hull beneath us, explained the doctor is filled with batteries and machinery, except for a space in the center, where a shaft leads to a glass window in the bottom, so that I can see behind me, so to speak. The space above is filled with storerooms and the air purifying apparatus. On this level is my bedroom, kitchen, and other living rooms, together with a laboratory and an observatory. There is a central control room located on an upper level, but it needs seldom be entered, for the craft can be controlled by a system of relays from this room or from any other room in the ship. I suppose that you are more or less familiar with imaginative stories of interplanetary travel? I nodded in assent. In that case, there is no use in going over the details of the air purifying and such matters, he said. The story writers have worked out all that sort of thing in great detail, and there is nothing novel in my arrangements. 
I carry food and water for six months and air enough for two months by constant renovating. Have you any question you wish to ask? One objection I have seen frequently raised to the idea of interplanetary travel is that the human body could not stand the rapid acceleration which would be necessary to attain speed enough to ever get anywhere. How do you overcome this? My dear boy, who knows what the human body can stand? When the locomotive was first invented, learned scientists predicted that the limit of speed was 30 miles an hour, as the human body could not stand a higher speed. Today, the human body stands a speed of 360 miles an hour without ill effects. At any rate, on my first trip, I intend to take no chances. We know that the body can stand an acceleration of 32 feet per second without trouble. That is the rate of acceleration due to gravity and is the rate at which a body increases speed when it falls. This is the acceleration which I will use. Remember that the space traveled by a falling body in a vacuum is equal to one-half the acceleration multiplied by the square of the elapsed time. The moon, to which I intend to make my first trip, is only 280,000 miles, or 1,478,400,000 feet from us. With an acceleration of 32 feet per second, I would pass the moon two hours and 40 minutes after leaving the Earth. If I later take another trip, say to Mars, I will have to find a means of increasing my acceleration, possibly by the use of the rocket principle. Then there will be time enough to worry about what my body will stand. A short calculation verified the figures the doctor had given me, and I stood convinced. Are you really going? I asked. Most decidedly. To repeat, I would have started yesterday had you arrived. As it is, I am ready to start at once. We will go back to the house for a few minutes while I show you the location of an excellent telescope through which you may watch my progress and instruct you in the use of an ultra-shortwave receiver which I am confident will pierce the heavy side layer. With this, I will keep in communication with you, although I have made no arrangements for you to send messages to me on this trip. I intend to go to the moon and land. I will take atmosphere samples through an airport and if there is an atmosphere which will support life, I will step out on the surface. If there is not, I will return to the earth. A few minutes was enough for me to grasp the simple manipulations which I would have to perform, and I followed him again to the space flyer. How are you going to get it out? I asked. Watch, he said. He worked some levers, and the roof of the barn folded back, leaving the way clear for the departure of the huge projectile. I followed him inside and he climbed the ladder. When I shut the door, go back to the house and test the radio, he directed. The door clanged shut and I hastened into the house. His voice came plainly enough. I went back to the flyer and waved him a final farewell, which he acknowledged through a window. Then I returned to the receiver. A loud hum filled the air and suddenly the projectile rose and flew out through the open roof, gaining speed rapidly until it was a mere speck in the sky. It vanished. I had no trouble in picking him up with the telescope. In fact, I could see the doctor through one of the windows. I have passed beyond the range of the atmosphere, Tom, came his voice over the receiver, and I find that everything is going exactly as it should. I feel no discomfort and my only regret is that I did not install a transmitter in the house so that you could talk to me. But there is no real necessity for it. I am going to make some observations now, but I will call you again with a report of progress in half an hour. For the rest of the afternoon, and all of that night, I received his messages regularly, but with the coming of daylight they began to fade. By nine o'clock I could get only a word here and there. By noon... I could hear nothing. I went to sleep hoping that the night would bring better reception, nor was I disappointed. About eight o'clock I received the message, rather faintly, but nonetheless distinctly. I regret more than ever that I did not install a transmitter so that I could learn from you whether you were receiving my messages, his voice said faintly. I have no idea of whether you can hear me or not, but I will keep on repeating this message every hour while my battery holds out. It is now thirty hours since I left the earth, and I should be on the moon, according to my calculations. But I am not, and never will be.
I am caught at the neutral point where the gravity of the earth and the moon are exactly equal. I had relied on my momentum to carry me over this point. Once over it, I expected to reverse my polarity and fall on the moon. My momentum did not do so. If I keep my polarity as it was when I left the earth, both the earth and the moon repel me. If I reverse it, they both attract me, and again I cannot move. If I had equipped my space flyer with a rocket so that I could move a few miles or even a few feet from the deadline, I could proceed, but I did not do so, and I cannot move forward or back. Apparently, I am doomed to stay here until my air gives out. Then my body, entombed in my spaceship, will endlessly circle the Earth as a satellite until the end of time. There is no hope for me, for long before a duplicate of my device equipped with rockets could be constructed and come to my rescue, my air would be exhausted. Goodbye, Tom. You may write your story as soon as you wish. I will repeat my message in one hour. Goodbye. At nine and at ten o'clock, the message was repeated. At eleven, it started again, but after a few sentences, the sound suddenly ceased, and the receiver went dead. I thought that the fault was with the receiver, and I toiled feverishly the rest of the night, but without result. I learned later that the messages heard all over the world ceased at the same hour. The next morning, Professor Montesquieu announced his discovery of the world's new satellite. Thank you for listening to The Last Mayorzine of November. Next week, we begin to get into the Christmas spirit. Also, coming up this next month, we'll have our first guest narrators as well. I'm very excited. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Making this thing takes money, and wonderful patrons make it that much easier. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find it at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. All the music was licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.